Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Are used in the most effective way. 
when I started uh, dealing with government finance uh, over 45 years ago, uh, I was told a, a saying said, doctors bury their mistakes in government finance and refinance them. Well, there comes a time when you can't refinance it. It's just not affordable. And the whole question of whether or not pensions are affordable or not is not a question of unwillingness. If a government has the ability but doesn't raise taxes or reduce expenses to pay them, uh, that is really the fault of the government and they should take the right action. What we're talking about today is the other problem. The problem of a government that just does not have the financial ability to pay. And what do you do when the obligations exceed the ability to pay? Now, there's a trend that has gone on for the last 10, 15 years, uh, in particular in the case law, where the need of municipalities and states to be able to adjust pensions has been a real cry for reasonable adjustment. And at the same time, we have had the development of case law, which has a growing recognition that in order to protect the health, safety, and welfare, to assure that the services and the infrastructure improvements are at an acceptable level and not crowded out by unaffordable expenses, that there has to be room for reasonable changes and adjustments to pension benefits in the least drastic way, in the way that most honors the obligation to pay, but still you can't have that crowd out. Uh, and because of that, and with that development, uh, it, it is justified because it is done uh, for a higher public purpose, the people, the services, the health, safety, and welfare. And it is therefore implemented in a number of different ways, sometimes through legislation or pension funding, funding policy, sometimes through constitutional amendments. Uh, there's an amendment I saw in the draft, uh, we'll see where it goes, uh, for Connecticut, uh, possibly providing a constitutional amendment that would give them more flexibility. Uh, and a number of states are, are looking at that at the present time. Uh, there are uh, the ability, as, as Tom mentioned, that uh, if you're a municipality in distress and your state allows you, and, you know, over half the municipalities don't allow you to file Chapter 9, but if your state allows you, you can file a Chapter 9 municipal, municipal bankruptcy. The problem of all past Chapter 9s takes too long, costs too much, don't achieve exactly what you want, and nobody's happy. So it's not necessarily the recipe. I think that the, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about in the talk is, is should there be a prepackaged, like we have for corporate bankruptcies, where you negotiate, you obtain deals, you solicit acceptance from the creditors, you get an accepting class, then you file it, and rather than taking years, it is a matter of 60, 90, or 120 days in route. Lead less in bankruptcy. There's also the ability, and one of the things that I've suggested in the past is whether or not we should think about creating a new type of bankruptcy court for public pensions, where they are really schooled and skilled in the issues and in government finance and the issues with regard to unions and union contracts, labor agreements, and, and really try to come together for a recovery plan to make it affordable. And, and that's a possibility. There are a number of states that provide some oversight or commission that either looks at and monitors the pension issues or 
really takes a more proactive role trying to get the pension funds and the local governments uh, to take the right action. Uh, if you look at the Texas Commission in Michigan, just passed some new legislation trying to provide oversight and, and actually triggers when there are warnings of a problem. So that's sort of the overview of what can be done. And what I'm going to do now is just sort of give you a little background. You're going to have available to you the slides, and you're going to have to you a, a tale of two cities of Cranston and Oak Lawn. And uh, that's a better cure for insomnia than possibly the mic. <laughs> so let's really quickly go through. First of all, the real pension started out in the early 1900s. Uh, really as gratuities. There were gifts given to the employees to make them happy. In the latter part of the 1900s, the workers wanted some assurance. We didn't want a promise that could be taken away. Give us some rights. And, uh, and with that uh, came contractual rights. Now, breaking out the states, some have constitutional provisions. And as you can see there, there are seven uh, that do that. Some have constitutional provisions and some statutes. Some have statutes and case law. Uh, the important thing to keep in mind, and, and some of it is case law, the California rule, which at one time or another, 19 or more states uh, followed, uh, you know, was a rule which basically you had your rights as an employee once you were an employee. And if there was going to be a change, you couldn't take anything away without a comparable benefit being given, which really is a zero-sum game as far as reducing it because it's not unaffordable. There's some recent appellate court cases in California, which we'll touch on very briefly, which are talking about, no, you're not entitled to an optimal form of a pension, a reasonable pension is what you're entitled to. And they talk about, for a higher public purpose, uh, making changes. There are some states, uh, and we listed there, Wisconsin, Ohio, etc that have it as a property right. So it's not a contractual right, it's a property right, and there's some vesting issues there and when and how you can approach it. And can you do changes? Yes, historically, there have been ability to do all sorts of changes. Uh, you want to, and a lot of times it's a growing issue, in your collective bargaining agreement, your labor agreement, or your legislation, you really want to leave the door open to make changes. And the failure to do that has created some of the difficulties that people have faced. Uh, obviously, to save a pension fund, sometimes you have to make changes because if it's not affordable, it's never going to be met, and the whole keeps on getting bigger. Uh, and we can talk about this. Normally, adjustments prospectively, uh, a lot of times, are permitted. Benefits that accrue in the future, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Reductions in mandatory retirement age, so forth. You know, there are lots of ways in which you can make changes, changes to help save the plan. And in the case law that has developed, the changes prevent pension plans from failing. That's obviously an important part. If the plan is going to fail, better to solve it quickly rather than letting the hole get bigger. Uh, also, balancing advantages and disadvantages is sometimes a, a way in which they've allowed some changes. Reasonable modifications of the theory of saving the system, which generally works. And then modifications of pensions must be related to a public purpose. Obviously, you're doing it because if you don't do this, the, the pain on others are going to sacrifice. And it has to be a justifiable public good. Now, the Supreme Court has recognized in all sorts of cases 
dealing with contracts, especially government contracts, that in the tough cases, you are allowed to make changes to public contracts. The burden is on the government to take the least drastic way to work through a balancing test so that every right of the individual is outweighed by the higher public purpose. Uh, obviously, one of the things people forget, Puerto Rico back in 2013 actually used those Supreme Court decisions to make significant modifications to their pensions for, to save the island, as they were saying. And it was, it was well received. However, when they tried to do it for the teachers, they didn't have the public purpose argument working. It just wasn't there as far as the Supreme Court was concerned. And so they denied it for the teachers, but not for the general government. Uh, there are over 5,500 pension funds. And they have uh, you know, 4.5 million current employees, 10.3 million retirees. Uh, you know, underfunding is one to three billion or more, depending on what discount rate you want to use. Uh, it's a lot of money because if you look at the, the in 2016, the tax revenues uh, for state and local governments were about 1.6 trillion. So if you're one to three trillion dollars worth of underfunding, that's a lot of state and local government revenue. Uh, 75 of the pension systems account for about 80% of the part participation. Now, one of the things to keep in mind here, uh, and, and if you look at the analysts, all the government finance analysts are a Twitter about this. They, they definitely are very much concerned about how this falls out on municipal and state credits. One of the interesting things the, the Boston College Center pointed out, we go back to 2000, a lot of our public pensions were fairly well funded, as, as indicated here. The top, uh, the top third was 110% funded on average, and even the bottom was 90%. But that dropped 20%, 27%, and 35% between then and and, and recently. And why why was that? One of the things is we have economic downturns, and if your pension is based on how you invest, and if you invest in the S&P 500. You suffered a 2001, 2007, 2008 downturn, which was either 46 or some percent or 57 percent loss of value. And so obviously those downturns create a more need for additional funding. There are a lot of, you know, if you talk to, to mayors or, or state legislatures, they sometimes feel they're paying twice because of the market loss that sometimes is suffering. Uh, and, you know, one of the key things to keep in mind, too, is the necessity of balanced budget. Virtually all states have some form of a balanced budget required. The problem is, and this is <coughs> one thing that people are, are constantly debating, is at times people try to interpret it as we balance it because anticipated revenues don't exceed expenditures. So if I don't expend the money, I balance the budget. Of course, I have a large unpaid bill problem, but I balance both my budget. We should be doing this on the, the basic accrual of liability. So whatever your current revenues or your current liabilities are, you should be balancing out and, and not you know, just basically based on expenses. One of the other issues is whether or not um, uh, there should be risk sharing. I mean, Wisconsin, which is basically 100% funded, a number of years ago put in risk sharing. And it actually became somewhat popular on uh, their employees. 
And, and therefore, under certain circumstances, you do well. Uh, it helps the workers. If you have losses, they share it with the government, so the government doesn't, in their mind, have to pay twice, which you know, it depends upon which side of the issue you are on, based on that. Uh, we have an aging population. By 2050, we're going to have 5% more people over 65 of our total population, and 5% less between the earning years of 18 and 64. So, you know, the dynamics are going to be a little bit different, too. As far as pension reform, and if this is directional, okay, when I say 80%, uh, it depends which cases you cite and so forth, but the vast majority of the cases in pension reform have been favorable, mainly because of the crisis that was faced and the need to address it. Uh, the one state out, you know, Illinois, where uh, Larry is from, and I am from, uh, is sort of an outlier. Uh, it does not allow any type of involuntary pension adjustment, and even for a higher public good. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Rhode Island, where uh, Mayor Farm is from, uh, has allowed pension reform, uh, along with California and a number of states. Uh, at least 45 plus states have, since 2007 have done some form of pension reform. Uh, the COLA litigation is the cost of living adjustment, which could be 3% in many places and not reflective of the real cost of living, has been adjusted in many states. In Illinois and some others, it is not allowed. Uh, Illinois had a test case for state pension reform. The Supreme Court, which unfortunately was reacting to, one, our legislature in Illinois had not raised taxes. They actually let part of an increase of income tax sunset. Uh, they really had done nothing to keep the cost of pensions down and never really met a pension increase in a legislative form that they did like, which created frustration by the Supreme Court to a degree. And so therefore, I think they were reacting from the frustration uh, and therefore did not allow and ruled unconstitutional given Illinois' constitutional pension protection clause that says, in essence, that the contractual relationship, which is the existence of the pension uh, beneficiaries and the pension obligations of the municipality, that contractual relationship and those benefits shall not be impaired or diminished. And they interpreted that as once employed, you have the right to your pension, and that can't be changed involuntarily. Voluntarily it can be, but involuntarily cannot be changed, uh, even for a higher public purpose. We'll talk about why that is so strange, but virtually all other courts have done. City of Chicago tried it. They had some, actually some very good arguments. One of them was we passed a law in 63 that said we contained the formula, which the city of Chicago has done every year, that the state has set forth for pensions, the state and the municipality should not be liable. And the Supreme Court just sort of walked over that, saying, well, the, the constitutional amendment in 1970 uh, superseded uh, the 1963 legislation. Well, the constitutional amendment, if you go back to the legislative history, only dealt with making it a contractual obligation. It had nothing to do with funding or who was liable. So I think the Supreme Court was a little wrong in that. Uh, the San Jose and San Diego and others have 
push reform. Since 2007, you've seen the shrinking of a lot of government employees. Uh, and part of that is to deal with the austerity of the situation. They hopefully solve some of the pension issues. Uh, Arizona is an interesting example. In Arizona, they won their case. The unions did and the workers did against pension reform. Uh, they were trying to do some modification of coal and some other changes. They then realized, because they had state pensions uh, funds, that the local governments were significantly reducing. They said, in a squad car, we don't need two policemen. We only need one. On trucks, why do we need four? We only need three. And they significantly changed and reduced it. The firefighters, you know, being quick in many aspects, realized where that was going and led the movement to pension reform. And basically, negotiated for police and fire, pension reform, had it introduced this legislation, and then they passed an amendment to their constitution which basically said, you have these rights except to set forth in this state law. And that was a way of solving the problem. And they then have done the same thing for other municipal workers, correctional workers, and others, and set up some pension reform from a management standpoint also. And we've sort of explained that in the slides. So there are economic cycles. There are going to be ups and downs, and you're going to have stress on pensions or the ability to pay. But the main thing is that if you're going to balance your budget, you want to make sure that you constantly make sure the one thing that we know, from whether it's Detroit, Bridgeport, Connecticut, pick your distressed municipality or state. If you increase taxes, and if you lower services because you're reducing expenditures, uh, People have found, as in Bridgeport and in Detroit, you wind up losing businesses and individuals who can leave. Those who can't leave stay. You wind up eroding your tax base and collecting less money. And if you do it year after year, you put yourself into a death spiral, which is no good. And you need state intervention to solve it. We talked about the US Supreme Court. It has a series of decisions that allow governments to to make changes in government contracts in the dire circumstances, working through a balancing test and making sure it's in the least drastic way for a higher public purpose. And we, we, we go through some of the case law there. Again, I'm just trying to give you a sort of overview. The city of Cranston was faced uh, uh, back in, in 2011, 2013, uh, of having a difficult time. Uh, they had lost a, a billion dollars in their assessed value. Uh, they had lost funding uh, from, the, from the state aid. Uh, and uh, their uh, funding ratio was something close to about 16%. And in 2011, the state passed pension reform legislation that if you're in a critical circumstance as determined by your actuary, the funding ratio was under 60%. There were reforms that could be, could be taken. They made a proposal, the mayor made a proposal, negotiated with the police and fire, uh, had a proposal of basically a freeze on COVID for 10 years. Uh, that negotiation wound up being litigated at first, settled. The settlement provided an for those who did not opt out, alternating uh, year uh, suspension of, for 10 years. So every alternate year, the 3% would be suspended during a 10-year period, and thereafter, if the 
the 11th and 12th, it would be 1.5%. Uh, the people who opted out then turned around and sued. They went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court of Rhode Island found, given the dire circumstances they were facing, the literal financial inability to pay, what was there, the need for adjustment, that it was for a higher public purpose and should be permitted. And, and that is, you know, a, a, in contrast to sort of where uh, the city manager, Larry Deachin, is and what he can do, you're going to hear just shortly from both of them about their experience and what can be done. Now, the state of Illinois, let me just spend a second. The reason why they said higher public purpose didn't work was they said that that provision had to be in the pension clause itself. So the, the cannot impair or diminish had to basically be followed by subject to the exercise of police power by the municipality or the state or something to that effect. The problem with that is if you look at the Supreme Court decisions and decisions in other states, they don't require it to be explicit. It's implicit because it's an inalienable right of a government to protect itself and its existence for the health, safety, and welfare of its citizens. And therefore, you don't have to say that which is implicit, and you don't have to reserve it. Now, the Illinois Supreme Court, interestingly enough, when they looked at the private contract clause, which is similar uh, to the one for pensions, but for private contracts, did not say that it had to be explicitly set forth, and it did. It did reserve the police power, but they found that the police power was there when necessary uh, to protect rights and interests. So with private contracts as opposed to public pensions, they, the Illinois is allowed. Uh, Illinois also likes to compare itself with New York. Uh, New York has a similar constitutional provision, but a mandated pension funding provision. In Illinois, then the legislature set forth the formula for funding, which was really more based on a defined contribution basis as opposed to a defined benefit plan. And there was a huge mismatch between what the contribution the Illinois legislature required and what was required to pay the actuarially required contribution, what would actually fund the pension. And because of that, because of that, you, you wound up with a, a serious disconnect between funding the pension and the payment and fulfilling that obligation, which created some of the problems that the state and a number of municipalities are in. In New York City, they recognized for a higher public purpose the need to freeze. And most reforms are prospective as opposed to deal with vested rights. It's only in the most, most higher circumstances the courts have allowed uh, vested rights to be significantly changed. That which is earned and changing that which is earned uh, and, and vested as opposed to that which may come in the future. And so when New York City had their problem in 1975, there was a wage freeze. And the wage freeze legislation froze not only at the beginning, not only the wage, but any pension benefit attributable to step increases, increases in revenues, COLAs, etc. And uh, later on, they settled by not having affect the pension because the pension was pretty well funded and they really didn't need that relief. They needed a, a, a 
short-term or somewhat turned out to be long-term relief uh, from their illiquidity given their revenues and their obligations. Uh, Yonkers back in, in, in 1946 recognized this. Right after 1938, they passed the Constitutional Pension uh, Clause in uh, New York. And there are a number of others, Buffalo, a number of other cities recognize that. And, and then we have the California rule. And as I mentioned, there are a number of appellate decisions that are working their way up to the California Supreme Court trying to recognize a reasonable pension, changing the California rule from that, if there's a disadvantage, you have to give an equal, comparable advantage, i.e. a zero-sum game, that really doesn't get you anywhere. And the reason why they did that is uh, there was a study done by Stanford University that Joe Napier there, 14 cities, and between uh, 2018 and 2017, uh, their pension obligations increased 400%. Their debt that they borrowed money to help pay pensions increased 900%, something like 11.6 to 120, 130 billion dollars. So uh, you can see that, you know, and that I think helped move appellate courts and hopefully move the appellate, the Supreme Court to, to make a change there. On the California rule, which basically you know, we've talked about the, there are states that have followed it, but recently 14 states have ex expressly rejected it because they can't live with it. COLA changes, needs to make adjustments, and, and another implicitly have, and there's really only two states presently that are following by the total level of the rule, and that's Nebraska and Nevada. Uh, and as I mentioned, the ways of solving this, you know, involuntary changes generally before a court, and people can tell you the trauma. If you don't have the higher public purpose, it's really going to be hard to change it uh, through the courts. And so the higher public purpose argument is really the, one of the keys that make it work. Uh, now, I just want to briefly, as far as bankruptcy, and I just tell you, there, there are 24 states that either generally authorized or conditionally authorized states to file, and then the rest may uh, have some differences, but generally don't allow them municipalities to file. There aren't a lot of chapter nines, uh, and only 684 since 1937. That's about 8.5 or thereabouts chapter nines per year. Most of those were years ago, uh, and so it's not a very high. We have over 80,000 governmental entities that could file. Yeah. The experience in Vallejo, Stockton, and Detroit have been pensions when they've come to be adjusted for one reason or another have been not adjusted as harshly as, as other creditors, but again, trying to, to deal with the problem and make it affordable. Now, the mission of government, and it's really key, important to keep in mind, is to provide those services. Uh, and the crowding out of essential service funding and infrastructure improvements by pension costs are not good for anybody because if people start leaving, if you get that debt spiral and less revenues, that means less workers and less dollars to pay pensions. So everybody's in it together. As I mentioned, the ways of, of doing it and, uh, is a prepackaged plan uh, or uh, you know, creation of a federal bankruptcy court or oversight uh, or model guidelines for a constitutional amendment or legislative funding. 
And you know, we have some additional information there. Uh, let me move now to just very quickly the tale of two cities. And I'm just going to set it from a perspective. Uh, you can see on the, on the chart, and these are all going to be available to you, the population, uh, Cranston is a little larger. They're both urban cities. They're both very close. We're bordering the major city in the, in, in the state. Uh, the estimated uh, median income is, is not that far off. Median house values are close. Uh, the cost of living is, is uh, cheaper in, in, in Cranston than in uh, Oak Lawn. Uh, if you look at the demographics, they're roughly the same. If you look at the areas, Cranston is obviously a, a larger footprint than Oak Lawn. Oak Lawn is more dense, significantly more dense. The median real estate property taxes are about $1,000 more in Oak Lawn. Uh, <coughs> versus uh, Cranston. If you look at their type of business, their businesses pretty much match up. And so they have basically a very similar business, a little difference with regard to some manufacturing, but, but otherwise very similar. Education, their population is generally the same educational background. Uh, there's some background here. We, we took this from citydata.com, and so it's 2016 material. But you can see, in, as far as police officers go, they have roughly the same per thousand. Uh, reportedly, the average wage, and there may be a mistake with the information we got from city data, and the mayor can help correct that, uh, on the average wage. And the firefighters, though, there are almost twice as many firefighters uh, in Cranston as there is in, in Oklahoma. Uh, as far as full-time uh, employees, if you look at the Pension fund uh, uh, the, the cost uh, you see the cost per resident <coughs> for the government employees here higher in Oakland than Cranston. If you look at funding, uh, all plans obviously Oakland is not fully funded. The two state plans in, in Cranston in, in, in 1995. Uh, uh, they made a change for police and fire. They froze, in essence, the plan. Uh, and all new employees, police and fire, went into the state plan, not the local plan. You know, and uh, the local plan uh, presently has like 27 active members and 422, that's the old one, 422 retirees or something like that. And all, everybody else is in the state plan. The state plan is basically 100% funded. Uh, and, and when you look at the police, that's the state plan for police versus uh, Oak Lawn. You see 61 to, to about 70 when we throw in fire versus 100%. Same thing with firefighters uh, and uh, municipal employees. If you look at the old Cranston plan, you see that that is, again, still suffering. Uh, it's 21.9% funded. Uh, if you look at the long-term liabilities, general obligation bonds, roughly somewhat similar uh, in, in dollar amount. Uh, revenues, uh, you know, some deficits obviously in the general fund for, for the stress. And then if you look at pension liability per resident, uh, and if you look at just police and fire, it's about 3,000 for Oakland, and it's about 3,000 for uh, Cranston. And so with that, I want to turn it over to the mayors who will tell you 
from the trenches, what goes on, what works, what doesn't work, the problems they got. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mayor Alan Fung from Cranston, Rhode Island. You know, I'm very honored to be here with Larry, uh, Jim, Tom. I appreciate the invitation to talk a little bit about, you know, the crisis that we went through in the state's second largest city. Um, and as Jim kind of mentioned in his discussion, uh, when I first got into office uh, almost 11 years ago, you know, I got in during the height of that recession. You know, we were facing financial calamity, uh, not only with the million dollar billion dollar loss in property values, you know, millions that were getting cut from the state, but inheriting budget deficits from the prior mayor, a lot of issues with our schools, you know, really encountering uh, close to bankruptcy. You know, a lot of the um, rating agencies had us on a negative watch. And during that time, you know, not just us, but every city in town across Rhode Island, probably across the country, was facing the same problems, uh, probably at different levels. But one of the overwhelming problems that we all faced was the pension obligation. And one of the problems with Cranston was we had um, our local pension plan, which is a closed plan. It only had approximately maybe 500, not only just um, active members, retirees, but also beneficiaries left because all of the other police and firefighters post-1995 were in the state pension that Jim talked about. But this plan was the second worst funded plan in the state of Rhode Island. The rating agencies were really looking at us from a financial perspective that you've been underfunding it. Not us necessarily as administration, you know, we were part of the problem, we just got in, but many administrations for years had just either done it as a pay-as-you-go system, or one administration even took dollars out of the assets. So you can imagine as a retiree, as an employee, one of those police or firefighters that had worked all those years that felt that their obligations were locked in contract or in the ordinances that we had, they felt wrong. And here I was coming in during this financial calamity. We had to make a lot of tough decisions, not only with respect to the pension, but also in all the other areas. You know, we had to make sacrifices and cuts, not only within my administration, cutting and laying off uh, staff making sure that you know we provide as much service as we can we dropped our capital budget so we you know limited a lot of our capital improvements road paving you know i even had to close uh, our pool one summer because you know we didn't have the money to invest to fix you know the pool so our kids suffered during that summer we were in a real dire financial situation but this pension problem was one of uh, the ones that the rating agencies in the state really looked at and put a finger on uh, because at that time, the state of Rhode Island was also undertaking a look at pension uh, reform as well at the state level. And when they passed that state reform, one of the obligations that they imposed on cities and towns was to take a look, as we had already started to in Cranston, because this was a lingering problem that I recognized, take a look at our plan and put together a plan and path forward to fix it. So that gave us, not only in Cranston, but many cities and towns, the kickstart to do the necessary work and start 
the hard discussions. You know, I was a lawyer before I became mayor. And I've been in a civil law firm. I was a criminal prosecutor. I even worked for a top 100 uh, fortune company in MetLife where I headed up their government department. But by far, the biggest and most rewarding experience sitting across the table in negotiations for me as an individual was sitting across the table with our police and fire unions, retirees who are, by the way, not represented by these unions. They're individuals. They don't even have an association that represents their interests. And sitting across the table and listening to their stories. Because the numbers are staggering. And when I you know, sat across the table, I heard it. It was a fight. It was visceral. Because I had to listen, not just to numbers, but to the firefighters that sacrificed. Because as many uh, firefighters as there were, or police officers that were, that were making six figures in retirements, and it's always easy to point to these individuals saying, you're making six figures, who's getting a cola? There were also those other retirees, or even their widows, that are only making maybe $20,000. Because remember, they retired years ago, and that cola hasn't caught up. And sitting across from them was the most difficult set of negotiations I've ever, and it was months worth. But I think being honest with them, listening to them, really had a deep impact and built the trust on them. And it wasn't easy, because when I put forward those um, ordinances that first froze the 10-year uh, COLAs, it was bad. I mean, I put it in front of the city council. I had to move it out of the council chambers into our high school auditorium, because they came out in droves, almost probably, you know, the 100-plus uh, active employees that were still there, all the retirees. It was personal to them. And they lined up and told their stories about what they were facing, how that COLA and that little raise was so important to them because they weren't making any income and they were facing the same plight that the rest of us were. But as we listened, one of the promises I made to them that why I thought this set of negotiation worked the best was that I would undertake to make sure that we would do it based on facts. They had been lied to by many administrations in the past whether it's you know, taking dollars out of their uh, funds or not having it properly funded. I undertook those heavy costs to make those actuarial runs and provide the actual data with them. And a lot of retirees saw that I was willing to listen to them and formed an association to come to the table and sit with the union members, myself, my finance director, and my team to just work through the numbers. And that 10-year cola freeze was still what we needed, but where we got the overwhelming majority of the retirees and union members to sign off that settlement that Jim talked about, we went back and forth. There were certain items that were off the table with the uh, you know, members, in particular, the widow's benefit, which is a reduced benefit anyways. They didn't want any of them touched. And that's fine. We worked with them and came up with different levers on that reform. Ultimately, we came to a solution. You know, obviously, we had to still put forward the 10-year um, you know, COLA freeze. 
and 72 of those retirees, and it was just retirees that individually couldn't accept one cola freeze, that ended up suing us, and we ended up going into Superior Court, winning a trial, and our Rhode Island Supreme Court just came up with that decision uh, a couple months ago in June that affirmed that the actions that we took, because it wasn't just a sacrifice on retirees and union members, but they saw all the actions that we took to even have to raise taxes and make cuts in all the different other areas of the city, but still trying to maintain all the services that we provide from schools, recreation, senior centers, libraries, that was what made the dramatic difference at the trial court level, but also with the Supreme Court. But the fight's still not over because those 72 individuals have filed uh, a writ with our U.S. Supreme Court, and we're in the process right now of seeing where we are uh, going forward, and we're going to continue that fight because reforms aren't easy, but it's personal. But it's been rewarding for me from both an individual level but also helping the city because that reform in one year alone shaved about $7 million off our arc so that I can afford to invest the dollars in other areas and priorities for the city and shaved about $60 million off our unfunded liability. So it can happen and it can work. And you know, I thank you for the opportunity to kind of share Cranston's story and I'll turn it over to Larry. Thank you, Mark. Can you all hear me? I'll try that way first. Um, first of all, I, I'm not a mayor, thank you, but um, that gets managers in trouble. Uh, I'm an appointed official. I work for a president and four trustees. So the governing body is a body of five. The trustees are elected by geographic districts and the mayor and president is elected at large. And I'm <coughs> gonna give you a couple words I'll try to talk pretty quickly because I'd love to be able to ask some of your questions. Uh, but I am going to lead with uh, back in 1963, I sat in a room where John F. Kennedy was um, addressing our high school in a suburb of Chicago. I was a freshman in high school, very impressed. Um, at that time, the candidate was Richard Nixon. Uh, he, he was quite an individual, and in 1984, I had the distinct honor of coming here to the Kennedy School and participating in your program under Governor Dukakis for senior um, executives in local and state government. So it's a pleasure to be back here. The building uh, is um, much more uh, robust than I remember being here, the classrooms, um, but it was a great experience. Uh, I also served as the assistant town manager in Arlington, Massachusetts, where firefighters picketed in 1974, picketed in front of town hall on Massachusetts Avenue as we attempted to take a case to the uh, highest court in Massachusetts on our position that binding arbitration was unconstitutional and that binding arbitration uh, in this state of Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, was taxation without representation. So from that, I've served uh, as a city manager in Michigan, in Florida, uh, in Illinois. Um, I did serve as an elected 
county commissioner in Michigan for a small, small uh, stint. And I also, with three investors, started a battery technology company, and we manufactured um, high-tech batteries, um, both lithium uh, batteries, uh, targeting our niche market with medical products and also um, nickel metal uh, hydride batteries. And again, attempt to get cadmium and other heavy um, metals uh, and improve the environment. When I came to Illinois, I was born and raised in Illinois, towards uh, the tail end of my career as a professional manager. And I'm going to give you these words, governance, corruption, crowding out other services, benchmarking best practices, interpretation, and I'm going to come back to the word interpretation in the Supreme Court decision in Rhode Island and the Supreme Court decision in Illinois. Power, informal power and formal power or authority. Promises, analysis. And as I explained to the good mayor, Mr. Healy, and to Jim in the back room, that I feel like the Indian with the tear coming down the cheek, returning to my home state, land of Lincoln, wonderful presidential library. I've served now, hard to believe, but four governors on a state board uh, trying to um, improve technology and consolidate emergency 911 services throughout the 102 counties in Illinois. Um, we are broke. Illinois is broke. The system is broken. Make no mistake about it. Just in the last week, Moody's Investor Services announced that Illinois leads the 50 states in this great nation with the highest unfunded pension liability. More so than New Jersey, more so than Connecticut, Rhode Island, the highest. The effective tax rate on a homeowner in Oak Lawn at 2.6% versus 1.9 in the good mayor's city of Cranston. Well, it's only 2.6, it's only 1.9. That's how much of a difference. Well, if you do the math, that could mean on a homeowner in a productive classification um, in Oak Lawn of close to five or $6,000 more a year that you're paying in property taxes. You've had two income tax increases, highest in history, 2011 and 2017. Add it up. The numbers don't add up. People look at alternatives. I can go across the line to Indiana, Oaklawn's 16 miles from the Indiana border, and that's where folks are going. We just lost an industry last week, 200 uh, manufacturing jobs, uh, three shifts employed, uh, parent company out of Japan, Defuku, um, leading cutting-edge robotic industry in manufacturing conveyor belts for distribution for Nordstrom, for Costco, um, and large uh, grocers. Uh, the state, I thought, made a very weak effort to retain that industry, to help a municipality to retain that industry. Uh, not only are they leaving to Indiana and going 36 miles away, just 36 miles away, 
but they're expanding their factory from roughly 135,000 square feet to over 300,000 square feet and increasing manufacturing jobs, good productive jobs. That is a trend that I do not see under current political leadership changing, sad to say. Um, we met just last week with the uh, deputy mayor of Chicago, because we're a neighboring community, one of the biggest suburbs in Cook County, and with their chief financial officer, a very impressive young lady. And we're attempting to partner with them. This is an opportunity for Mayor Lightfoot, I believe, to really be a reformer. But the jury's out. She doesn't go public on her budget until October 23rd. She's already met with investors prior to that announcement, and there was no information released yet on what pension reform she would support. It is unsustainable. I will tell you that the appendix and the PowerPoint that Jim has prepared are outstanding. His book is even better. It was a privilege to meet him, and he gave three hours of his time to meet with myself, our general counsel, our finance director. Um, we have done everything we can within our power locally as a home rule community. We have outsourced and privatized facility services, landscaping, emergency dispatches run by a partnership with a private company very successfully. And why do we outsource those services and reduce our workforce by 25%? Very simple to avoid pensions, defined benefit pensions, and to avoid um, retirement benefits that are provided. If you retire in Oak Lawn at the age of 50, let me repeat, if I've got 20 years of service and I retire as a firefighter or a police officer at the age of 50, we will pay 100% of your health insurance until you reach the age of 65, 100%. The median income is 62,000. The pensions are now going over six figures, over 100,000. They increase automatically at 3% every year. That's called a COLA. You tell me when the cost of living in our community in the last decade has gone up 3%, it has not. Workers who are actually employed get a pay increase less than that. Retirees get the 3%. They know the numbers. In 15 years, they're making more money retired than they did when they were an active employee. We have more retirees than we have active employees. So as I tell my taxpayers, you're funding two police departments and two fire departments. One that, in the case of fire, hardly works. And I, I want to explain that one in a second, and one that doesn't work. When I say hardly, if you're a village manager or if you're our mayor in our elected governing board who I report to and I carry out their policy, it's not effective and it is not productive. But we can't cut the size of the force due to labor laws. Um, we've gone to court. We've lost many times, spent a lot of legal money, unfortunately. And that word interpretation that I used, the Illinois Supreme Court, I do not know how they interpreted the
the city of Chicago and the efforts by the General Assembly to change the pension. Um, I applaud the Rhode Island Supreme Court. I applaud Mayor Fong and what he's done. Uh, that's true reform. Uh, in the back room, someone asked me, what, what's my crystal ball, what I think the future is? I, I can't tell you right now um, anything positive, uh, and that's a sad thing to do. That's, I, a, that's a good note to open it up to questions. Go ahead. Sure. Mm -hmm. Jim, do you want to orchestrate the questions? Sure. Okay. Let me see if we can give you a mic. Any questions? Yeah. I don't think people need mics. You need mics? No. Okay. No. Good. So, um, all these pension plans we are talking about are defined. Benefit. As you're probably well aware, in the private sector over a long period of time, the private sector has huge pension issues too. Uh, you, know, you described that the markets could affect how much you can pay out and so forth. And a number of private companies are underfunded. As a result of that, I think there's been a, a very big change in the whole attitude of pensions in the private sector from defined benefit to defined contribution. Now, I'm not saying that that is going to solve the problems of all the people that are kind of presently employed or whatever, but is there any thought that municipalities and states, like the private sector, should shift their pension plans from a defined benefit to a defined contribution? The former uh, governor, one-term governor, Governor Rauner, who was defeated last year by Governor Pritzker, um, attempted a reform package that included uh, support for a defined contribution. Uh, in Illinois, um, there's, there is no support or discussion of that that I see in the foreseeable future. Most of the reform is about consolidating what's called downstate communities which Oakland is part. If you're a downstate community, that just means you're not Chicago. And the downstate pensions all have their individual local pension boards, but the benefits are set by the state legislature. It's bifurcated that function. It's, it's bizarre, it's inefficient, it's ineffective. It, it plays to, to um, political contributions from the unions to secure more benefits. In Florida, as a manager in my workforce, in a right-to-work state, we put in a defined contribution plan that was approved, and four years later, through basically political of the system, um, firefighters were able to go back to the defined uh, benefit as opposed. All other workers from the CEO down continued on the defined contribution. So I'm a big supporter. I've seen what it can do. It's effective. Uh, you can contribute money yourself. You can make your own decision, your own investment decisions. Uh, it works, and the employer contributes into it like many private employers do. In Cranston, we actually have gotten out of the pension business for a lot of new employees. 
and move strictly for a lot of our, the, and I negotiated this also with our unions. Um, the other two bargaining units I have are the Teamsters and Laborers. And you know the old adage, uh, never let a crisis go to waste. During that time where some of these bargaining units didn't have much to give back during the concession bargaining, I took a look with some foresight to actually move the new employees out of it but I did it in a different way because what I saw happen in Cranston when they closed off that very bad plan, they never funded the transition. What they ended up doing was they closed off the plan, had a finite number, moved into the state system, started funding the state system, but then started rating assets and everything else in the closed plan. When I left with the other new employees now going forward, they moved into a 403B type plan for government entities, straight defined contribution. And what I found is a lot of the younger new employees love having that instead of a defined benefit. Just like Social Security, they're sitting there going, I'm never going to be here for a pension. They're seeing the crisis we're going through now. They want that flexibility and also portability because you're not seeing a lot of the younger workforce want to stay in government 30, 40, 50 years anymore. So we've done that going forward, but where it helped in that movement towards a defined contribution with all the other employees was we capped how much the city's contribution would be into um, you know, that uh, defined contribution portion. You know, whereas you know, many of the employees that are still in the state pension plan, we saw wild employer contributions swing upwards of 15, 20% because of the market uh, makeups that we would have had to, I capped on the DC side to 3%. So that savings that we had helped fund the transition on the old legacy costs. So I think if you do it smartly, we should get out of that business. To, to what extent is uh, bad policy responsible for the crisis? And if it, it was bad policy, um, is there some sort of lesson learned of uh, having long-term plans made with sort of uh, short-term um, office holders? Well, a, a couple things. First of all, back in 1974, when I was in Arlington, we were talking about pensions. 1974, we were talking about municipal pensions and our concerns about their health, because it was a pay-as-you-go system um, at that time, and it wasn't managed the way it needed to be done. Massachusetts also passed the voters two and a half, and they repealed the binding arbitration it took to the 1990s. We started the movement in 74 in Arlington backing that, um, but eventually the voters made decisions. That's one of my concerns in Illinois is that I believe that the voters should be given the opportunity for a constitutional amendment um, because the politicians have certainly failed and haven't taken the lead. You heard Mayor Funk talk about, in Jim, that there was reform efforts in establishing a two, tier one, tier two pension in the 90s. Where's Illinois? I mean, again, benchmarking best practices, and as you know, this, this school has a program for newly elected officials, uh, legislators, and, and, and getting you know, why was the bell not sounded then among Illinois officials um, in 
we don't have enough time to talk about some of those words that I mentioned. I, I use, it's rather than corruption, I, I, I could get into that, but I talk about um, intellectual dishonesty. I see much too much intellectual dishonesty, and, and that's a shame. It's a shame. These are intelligent men and women. We elected them. Shame on us. We put them in office. Uh, the, the caliber of elected officials, I say this too, that I saw that I served in Arlington, Massachusetts, compared to what it is, the number of business executives and people who are leaders of the community, the president of the bank, the pharmacist, uh, uh, board of education uh, folks, that the caliber of elected officials and their backgrounds has, has diminished over time. That's a fact. Yeah. I, I think to, to a degree, too, you gotta make the hard decisions. A lot of this is rather than give a pay increase, we'll give you more benefits because it's a future payment, not a present payment to balance the budget. And and quite candidly, those who have done the hard decisions are going to get the benefits. Those who don't are going to suffer the consequences. And as a politician, raising taxes is never easy. And whenever you're making a decision, I've sat both on the legislative front as a council member and now as mayor. And as a council member, when you sit in a room and, you know, when I had to move out of the council chambers into an auditorium because hundreds of people are there, you're sitting there getting berated, fingers pointed at you. And as a council person, you're sitting there counting all these individuals. Ooh, I know him. He's my neighbor. This. They're just, you know, they retract back into, oh, my God, I might not get elected. But that's where it's difficult. You have to have the right balance. And this is why, you know, for us, the mayor council form of government is good. Someone that's looking not just what's in front of them as far as benefits or, you know, overall the health of the city, but also long term. You really have to because, you know, Larry hit the nail on head. The next crisis that we're going to face outside of pensions is health care. Not only just for active employees, but retiree health care because similarly, you know, my police fire have, you know, retiree health care that fortunately we started getting them to pay into it now, into retirement. But before then, it was 100% funded by the city. So short-term decisions like, uh, you know, Jim was saying, because operationally you can get away with maybe not raising taxes a year or two, but you're going to pay for it at some point in time. Yes? You know, gov government's incremental. It's not radical. Um, the change in the, as I tell my employees, they don't listen because they don't have to. They go down to Springfield. They, they, they're polite. They'll say, Mr. Manager, I don't have to talk to you. I go to my state representative, my state senator. They make the benefits. All you do is pay it out, pal. And they're right. But what they're missing is the the new hires and the ones that are coming in 
I think you use the year 2050, and if you look at that and you're figuring, you're gonna, you're gonna, that old picture where the person looks on both, what did I do? What, what, what's wrong? Where, where's, I was promised, the word promise, and again, the definition, I, they always say to me, hey, you can't change the pension. I was promised. I, th I think the definition of that promise was to, to give you a fair, you're a public servant. The def, where, where did we forget you're a public servant? You, you, you work for the taxpayer. That term public servant, I'm not seeing the love for what that is right now. They're missing that point. Um, again, versus being in private sector and competition. You can tweak, as I tell them, you can make incremental changes like the COLA, or there's other adjustments we've talked about. You can cap, at least for the short period of time, you, 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 you capped every alternating year on the COLA, no COLA, then going back to your 3%. You, you can't afford pensions over 100,000, at least in my community. But we, we don't have the ability to change. We don't have the authority. We don't have the governance. You've got to go to your state senator, your state reps, and that's where you have what I call intellectual dishonesty. Although in Illinois, corruption. The first governor I worked for in the Bureau of the Budget was Governor Walker. I'll never forget. I'm 20, I don't know how many, 20. I just got out of graduate school. I'm all excited. I'm going to change the world, right? I found a no-show job in Chicago, 26 of them. Made your recommendation with the governor, sitting next to him as his chief of staff. I'm so excited, I've got my boss there, the head of the Bureau of the Budget. I can save you 26 positions. They're no-shows. I leave the room, I'm all excited. My boss remains in the room, he comes back, takes his pad of paper, throws it like that. And I said, what are you doing, Gene? He says, he didn't accept your recommendation, why? because the chief of staff said, what are you doing? Those are patronage jobs. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that's 1973, 2019, I'm in Illinois. Guess what? I've seen the same thing, period. Can I follow up just for a second on the specific question? I assume from your answer, neither of you, neither town offers Social Security as part of retirement. We do. We do. We, we depends, offer. Depends on which bargaining unit. Right. Correct. It, it's, it's a mixed bag. I would guess across the country maybe yes. half do. Right. And about half, correct. Uh, about 46. for everybody to think about before Scott calls us, calls us to a brief halt. <laughs> a, one of the most ideal pension plans in design to some people, to me, maybe the federal thrift plan. And, and you may argue, any of you who know me, that saying that there's something good about the federal government's pension plan, that's a combination of a modest DC, DB plan, Social Security, and then on top of that, a DC, DC. plan, which is contributory, which has now become the biggest DC <coughs> plan in the, in the yeah. world, at least right. in the country. And they, so it has three elements to it. Providing, providing retirement <clears throat> security, uh, but but the, there's a lot of argument, positive argument for including social security right. in the mix. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of good examples around the state of hybrid plans, cash balance plans, and so forth. Even in Illinois, we've had proposals for 
defined contribution hybrid cash. Mm -hmm. They never came out of committee, but at least there was legislation proposed. I'm afraid we are out of time. I'm hoping that uh, perhaps you can remain a few minutes afterwards for those who continue to have more questions. But please join me in thanking the speaker.